when your soul reaches out and engages the heart of God Himself, then you are dealing with eternal issues. Then you are climbing up into the lap of God. Then you are sitting on His lap, resting in Him, profoundly depending on Him, sharing your heart and mind and soul, being open and vulnerable and honest. That's real prayer. That's when it begins to make a difference. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. If you have your Bible with you this morning, can you turn with me please to John chapter 12. As we read John chapter 12, beginning at verse 12 to verse 20. Over the last few Sundays, as many of you know, we have been steadily working our way through the Lord's Prayer. And today we come to that last stanza, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And I was thinking all week what would be the perfect passage to illustrate all of the biblical principles involved in that prayer. And of course, as it's Palm Sunday, this passage works extremely well for us. So we're reading together John chapter 12, and you'll find it on page 1671. And excuse me, I should have announced that before now. Page 1671, famous story of Palm Sunday. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. I came across a news report about a week ago, and this is what it says. About 10 days ago, the Canadian Broadcasting Company reported that Milan Shipper began the journey of a lifetime. Shipper from Holland was planning to backpack through Australia, taking in its lush coastal landscape, white sandy beaches, before heading to college in the fall. In his online search for flights from Amsterdam to Sydney, one flight that popped up had seemed perfect. A 22-hour flight that was around $214 less than all the others. And so with great excitement, he booked the flight. He began to worry, however, that something was wrong when they touched down in Toronto. 
shipper looked out the window when he was waiting at the gate for the second flight and noticed that the plane was far too small to make it to Australia. His suspicions were confirmed after he boarded and checked the flight map on the seat screen. I saw the flight plan was not going where I thought it would go, and it was about that time that I realized there was another Sydney. He said, I felt terrible, and in my mind, he said, I swore for like 10 full minutes, and there was nothing I could do because I was already up in the air. Clad in a t-shirt, sweatpants, and a thin jacket, he landed in Sydney, Nova Scotia, <laughs> where residents were bracing themselves for a snowstorm, expected to bring gusting winds of up to 55 miles an hour and four to six inches of snow. Shipper remained in Nova Scotia for five hours before returning to Toronto and then to Holland. His father came to fetch him at the airport, and Milan said he really felt sorry for me when he was able to stop laughing. <laughs> and our heart just goes out to this young man who had the trip of a lifetime all planned. He was feeling important, grown up, adult-like, and was ready to take on the world. And he didn't pay attention to the fine print. He let all of the excitement of the event overwhelm him. And we can understand that. I know certainly I've booked a flight thinking it was eight in the morning and it was eight at night uh, and got into trouble when I was in London on one occasion. And it can certainly happen. But what we know is this. Every time a land shipper books a flight, he will read the fine print, he will check the detail, and he'll double check it and have someone else double check it for him just to be sure. And this morning as we come to that final stanza, in the Lord's Prayer. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. It is worth paying attention. It is worth looking at the small print and saying, what is it we are actually praying for when we say, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And of course, with today being Palm Sunday, I was thinking, what is a good passage I can take that final stanza and link it with a gospel passage as we explore the significance, monumental significance of Palm Sunday. Most of you will have already realized that the phrase, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, doesn't appear in Scripture in those words. We've been working our way through Matthew chapter 6, and the Lord's Prayer there doesn't have, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. The earliest manuscripts we have in Matthew's gospel don't have those words in there. They were used, however, by the early church, and around the year 100 AD, just at the turn of the first century, the phrase was certainly used by Christians in worship, and so that's why we use it today. And all of the fine biblical doctrines of, for thine is the kingdom, the providence, the salvation, the soteriology of God's purposes and plans are all certainly wrapped up in it. And so this morning, as we come to Palm Sunday and try and marry in some ways those two thoughts together, we have a problem. And here is our problem. And our problem is that we know Palm Sunday so well. 
Most of us, I think, smiled and rejoiced at the children this morning when they came in with their branches and we were celebrating Palm Sunday and all that's taking place in this last week of the life of Christ. And it's moving. But because we know it so well, we may be in danger of missing the eternal significance of what took place. And this morning, that's why we've gone to John's Gospel. John's Gospel is different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John's Gospel separates into two units. Verses 2 to 12 focus on the first three years of Jesus' ministry in Upper Galilee. And think of the miracles and the teaching and the lives that were profoundly impacted during that three-year period. And John covers it, verses 2 or chapters 2 to 12. And then he spends the next seven chapters in the last seven days of Jesus. And as soon as you read Palm Sunday, you think, wait a minute, what is going on? Three years for the first 12 chapters, and then seven days for the next seven? Why is it so important that John, as an older man, John was almost 90 years old, between 85 and 90, when he wrote his gospel, 60 years after what had taken place, maybe more than that, in fact. Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel was well known. They'd been established. So what was it that was in John's mind that he was saying it's so important to spend all this time on this last week? And he focuses, of course, on Palm Sunday to begin that section. Then he focuses on the changing of the money, uh, excuse me, turning over the temple uh, tables of the money changers. He focuses on what's called the upper room discourse, the Last Supper, Jesus engaging with his disciples, what happened at Gethsemane, then his arrest, and of course on into Easter Sunday. And it's so important for this reason, and please hear me when I say this, that John spends this second part of his gospel focused on eternal things. Sometimes for us, the temptation is to get caught up in the donkey and the children waving palms and all that happened around the Passover feast. But John powerfully reminds us that over and above, behind all of that, is the eternal purposes of God and how they are unfolding in front of all that took place that Palm Sunday and the week to follow. This is a remarkable passage. Think of the drama, the passion narrative, the excitement that is building during this week all begins on Palm Sunday. And notice how it begins. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Here's the question. Why were they going in their hundreds to see a man ride into the city on a donkey? Why were they using the words of Psalm 118? Hosanna, Hosanna, meaning salvation is now. 
Why were they saying, blessed is the king of Israel who comes riding on a donkey? Well, as you can imagine, there were different segments of the Jerusalem population there. Some of them, of course, had heard about Christ. They'd heard of the miracles. They'd listened to Him teach. They'd seen the impact He has on people's lives. And they knew the Old Testament and knew it well. They'd heard it in the synagogue and the temple many times. And they were taking it and applying it to their own context. And they were saying, surely this man is the Messiah. He's the one that's been promised from long ago. And then they would take it and put a political spin on it. Are you familiar with the phrase, never let a good crisis go to waste? That's what was going on in the mind of some. He is the one who will throw off the yoke of Rome with all of their taxes and regulations, and we in turn can establish ourselves to be an independent nation once again. We will be in charge of employment and export and import and trade, and we will become a superpower in the Middle East, akin to the days of David and Solomon. That's what we want, and He is the one. And some saw it politically. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they met up, they make up rather the ruling Jewish council called the Sanhedrin. There was about 70 of them. And in the chapter immediately before chapter 12, at the end of chapter 11, you have a little insight into what was going on in their minds. And they are talking and engaging with each other. And they say, this is getting out of hand. We can no longer control him. Look at it, miracle after miracle after miracle. Think of his teaching, the impact he is having. People are flocking to hear him. And if the Romans get wind of this, they will come and crush this. And they will blame us because he's a rabbi. He's a religious leader. And we will be out of power and influence and will no longer have authority here in Jerusalem. It has to stop. And in fact, Caiaphas says these words, the high priest that year, and in typical of what's called Johannine writing, Caiaphas says this, unknowing or not fully recognizing and knowing what he says, he says this, is it not better for one man to die than the entire nation to suffer? And that's typical of John. He gives you a phrase that has a multiplicity of theological meanings to it. Is it not better that one man should die than have the nation suffer? And Caiaphas had no idea that in the next seven days, the eternal purposes of God would come to fruition. Before the foundation of the world, God was working and planning and purposing to bring to pass His will, and it was about to take place in Jerusalem. And the religious leaders of the day did not for a heartbeat stop and say, where is this power coming from? Surely only God could work these miracles. No, they recognized the miracles and dismissed them. How bad had it become when those who were charged with spiritual care of the people of Israel could not see God in their midst? 
and they were caught up with the politics and the culture and the saving of their own power and influence. And then what about the disciples? John tells us, he looks back, and in great honesty, at verse 16, he said, at first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him, and they had done these things to him. They didn't get it. They had a broad understanding, but they missed it. Was it a lack of paying attention? Maybe. They knew he was quite special, quite wonderful. They'd seen him in action. But the fulfillment of all of God's purposes and plans. And then there's another unknown element, and it's this. In chapter 11, Lazarus Jesus' closest friends, certainly one of his closest friends, had died. Sisters were Mary and Martha. You're very familiar with the story. They lived in Bethpage, which is about two miles outside of Jerusalem. It's right beside Bethany and Bethpage. They are together, two small villages. And Lazarus had been in the tomb three days when Jesus brought him back to life. And can you imagine the impact that had on those two villages. Can you imagine when Jesus stood there and said, Lazarus, come forth, and the creative, re-energizing, renewing, life-giving power and authority was right there in the words of Christ, and Lazarus came back to life. And all over the area, people were saying, did you know? Did you hear? My cousin was there. His wife was there. They saw it. And people were now flocking in their hundreds and thousands to get a glimpse of what God was doing. And there was a hunger and an appetite for eternal things. Not the political, not the protection of their own jobs, but they saw God at work. And in their minds, we wouldn't be surprised if they were saying, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. They saw it and felt it and understood a little of what was taking place. Now, having described all that was happening that Sunday morning, when the crowd was there in significant numbers, realizing that there was something going on. Even though some wanted to spin it this way, some that way, others were getting it. They could see it. And over these last five or six Sundays, when we have been steadily working our way through the Lord's Prayer, do you remember what we said that first Sunday? We said that whenever we engage in prayer, prayer happens on the basis of our relationship with God. It doesn't happen just because we say the right words in the right order. In fact, when Jesus is teaching them how to pray, He says, let me tell you how not to pray. And He says, don't go on endlessly repeating the same old things, believing it will make a difference, because His point is this, repetition and rote in and of itself isn't genuine, heartfelt, intimate prayer. It is shallow and empty. 
And he's saying, when you pray, begin, our Father who art in heaven. And do you remember we went on to say that a helpful definition of prayer is this, that when your soul reaches out and engages the heart of God Himself, then you are dealing with eternal issues. Then you are climbing up into the lap of God. Then you are sitting on His lap, resting in Him, profoundly depending on Him, sharing your heart and mind and soul, being open and vulnerable and honest. That's real prayer. That's when it begins to make a difference. And please hear me when I say this, that once you have felt and experienced the eternal intimacy with the living God in heartfelt prayer, you will not settle for anything else again. You will not, because there is no substitute for it. And when you are there instinctively, the heart and soul soars heavenwards, and you say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's what's happening when you pray. That's real, credible, authentic, genuine, heartfelt intimacy with God. And there is no substitute for it. That's what's going on when we pray. And when we say, for thine is the glory for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, then, then we are praying. Now, how do we bring all of this to summary this morning? When we have prayed, thy kingdom come, and for thine is the kingdom, what is it we're asking? And we said this a couple of weeks ago, and it's a nice way to round off our teaching this morning. When we say, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, what are we doing? We are not only caught up in that moment of divine intimacy that is so utterly astonishing and wonderful, but we're also recognizing Almighty God we are giving to Him praise and glory and honor. We are giving to Him the unadulterated worship that He deserves. And as our hearts soar heavenwards, when we say, for thine is the kingdom, and let thy kingdom come, what we are saying is this, that we as individuals will submit and surrender to the rule and reign of God in our lives. And when temptation comes our way, our prayer is, Father, let me see it for what it is. And we touched on that last Sunday. Father, give me the spiritual perception I need to recognize the areas in my life that are not at one with you. Help me to deal with them and deal with them fully. And finally, Give me that sense of intimacy, that sense of enabling, that sense of equipping, that sense of engaging with you, and let me surrender and submit every area of my life in order that I might grow in grace and know you in a deeper, richer, fuller way. 
That's what's going on with real prayer. And please hear me when I say this. That is the hard work of prayer. Most of us, most of us, I think, if we were asked to pray, could pray for three, four, maybe five minutes. But the hard work of prayer, the work that takes us to that deeper place, the work that takes us to eternal levels, to new perspectives, is when we long for, when we are passionate about saying, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. That is worship. And remember, we've said in the past, as we've sought to define what worship is, worship is not so much an activity. It is what? A central part of our identity. And we do the natural things spiritually and the spiritual things naturally. That's what happens when you get caught up with eternal things. And when we get caught up with eternal things, the relationships we're struggling with at work the relationships we struggle with in our families, the relationships we struggle with in our neighborhood, the financial concerns that we have, our worries and anxiety about what the future holds, all of that, all of that comes into proper perspective when we begin and say genuinely in a heartfelt manner, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this well-known passage of Scripture. And thank you that today it speaks to us and calls us to eternal things, to go deeper in our faith in the recognition of your incredible, astonishing, outlandish love for us. Father, thank you for your grace towards us. May this Holy Week be a special week for us as we engage with you, the living God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you like to explore membership at First Presbyterian Church? Join us for a new member weekend and discover how we worship and live out our faith with each other and our community. The weekend consists of three sessions taking place on Friday evening, Saturday morning, and Sunday afternoon. You'll enjoy a meal with our senior pastor and other leaders. Learn what we believe and hear about our vision. Child care is available. Register today at firstpressgreenville.org.